Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. Some of you have been coming over the last few months, and some of you I don't think I've met before, so it's nice to make your acquaintance, those who are coming for the first time. And nice to see some of you old friends coming so many times. Those of you who have been coming know that we have been talking about a number of different things, but last week, or last month, I should say, in particular, we talked about something that uh, is more or less of a, a preface to the topic tonight. The topic tonight is sacred aesthetic rapture, kind of a high topic, sounds inviting. But to get there, is uh, to arrive at such a condition is not uh, so easy. Oftentimes, when we talk about the goal, the ideal, prayojan is called in Sanskrit, prem prayojan. And the prayojan, the fruit of practice, of the, go- the goal, the idea, the uh, enlightenment, if you like, and beyond, is prem, love. But so when we talk about it, oftentimes, the talks can be lofty, they can be very poetic and flowery and beautiful and and charming, but if we turn our attention then to the means of attaining that goal, often it's not as palatable and people find that they have other things to do that are more pertinent, that they think at least, that call upon them. So we did speak somewhat about the means over the months, and last week in particular we spoke considerably about what is not the truth. We spoke about the difference between the body and, or matter and consciousness at some length. And I, I mentioned that time that this was very kind of introductory, basic kind of material, but very important to put foundation stones in place first if we plan to build a high castle tower into the sky. So as we speak tonight about the ideal of enlightenment as understood in our particular tradition of Vedanta, Gaudiya Vedanta or devotional Vedanta, I will to some extent weave backwards also a little bit into a discussion of what is not the truth, what is not the ideal, what is this, the confusion and the, the delusion, the illusion that we suffer from at present that uh, obscures the ideal. And it's also worth talking about that to some extent in as much as, interestingly enough, the solution is also present to some extent in the, in the problem. Interesting idea, so the goal, the ideal, what is the um, highest possible prospect in life, it's speaking to us, even in our present condition, which is oftentimes a pursuit of something that is really not worth pursuing, it's not enduring at least, it's, as they say, uh, here today and gone tomorrow. There was a famous Russian philosopher, what was his name? Sol... Hmm? 
Solzhenitsyn. Yeah, Solzhenitsyn. I always forget his name. When he was accepted, I think he won a Nobel Prize. And when he accepted it, he made a statement. He said there a couple of statements, but one of them was, one word of truth outweighs the whole world. So that's a pretty strong statement. It, it says in one sense to us that, well, the world's... There's a lot of falsity to the world. <laughs> if only one word of truth will outweigh the whole thing. And uh, he made another statement, too, quoting another contemporary of his, a uh, Russian thinker. And uh, he said, that fellow said, that beauty will save the world. So it's interesting statements worth uh, exploring from the point of view of, of Vedanta. After all, it's all kind of philosophy, noetics, and uh, these things are all tied together, although they may come from different traditions, countries, and minds, and, and so forth. So, in Vedanta, we, in our tradition of Vedanta, devotional Vedanta, we also think that one word of truth certainly outweighs the world world being the basic misconception, moving on the misconception that what we are is that which we're attached to. In other words, our I, sense of I, is tied to our sense of mine. What I am is determined by what my desires are, what I'm attached to. I'm a father because I'm attached to my daughter. I'm a husband because I'm attached to my wife. I'm a mother because I'm attached to my children. In other words, that which I'm attached to and identified with by desire is defining me. And because the, the things that we're attached to are, again, here today and gone tomorrow, our sense of identity is in flux. and We're trying to figure out who we are, what we are. <laughs> and the, that identity is... is is changing because the world of things and people and what come and go. I seem to remain, <laughs> but what I am in relation to things that are here today and gone tomorrow is making my sense of self kind of elusive. So there's the search for the self. You've got to find yourself somehow or other. <laughs> You're all in, involved in it. That's what the, really what human life is about in uh, contrast to other forms of life. This is what it's more or less characterized by, search for identity. So there's a fair amount of falsity. In other words, we are an enduring thing, but we have a false sense of identity that's fleeting, that comes and goes based on our attachments and our desires and so forth. So a fair amount of uh, falsity and truth, then a word of truth is very powerful and Truth speaks to us about the ephemeral nature of the whole world of desire and attachment and so forth, and of beauty, for that matter, and of love. You know, it says love knows no reason, and in this world that's a problem then. If a young boy falls in love with a young girl and elders know this is just you know not going to work, no matter how much they try to inform the couple, the more it inflames their affinity for one another. So love knows no reason, and uh, we're supposed to be reasonable animals. So 
this kind of love is a problem. Love, love is a problem. Affatuation, I should say, is a problem. And, and the attraction for things of the world that keeps us here is keeping us in this condition where we can't find a self. The scenery is always moving. It's like moving uh, musical, you know, those musical chairs. And you're out. Come back again. So Vedanta, speaking kind of like scientifically and bearing down on the truth of the matter in a penetrating way, looking at the affair of our material existence, seeks to tell us that um, it's not what it what really looks like, what looks to be beautiful. Let's take, for example, the movements of nature. We live in California, and I lived here for a long time. And um, when I first came to California, it was in 1969, I think, 68 or 69, San Francisco. And, of course, it was... Uh, fun thing and a thing to do, to watch the sunset and, and, uh, you know, watch the beautiful colors. We used to augment the experience also, so it would be more colorful, (laughs) more beautiful. (laughs) But enamored, if you will, by the beauty of such a thing as the setting of the sun, you know, being swallowed by the ocean, as we could speak about it poetically. What is missed in that I, if you will, exercise is the fact that with the setting of every sun, our life, as we know it, is being taken away from us. Now, that's pretty beautiful too, but it's a little heavy kind of beauty. (laughs) It's a profound kind of, oh, yeah, that's beautiful. Thanks (laughs) for sharing that with me. But it's true. So true, in its truth, in a sense, kind of takes the beauty out of life. It kind of lays bare the naked form of material desire, and it's not so so pretty. But the question is that can we live with that? Do you follow me? We can't. It's difficult to live with the so-called truth of the ephemeral and the nature of the material world and an appearance only of beauty because what's making the whole thing worth living as illusory as it is is the beauty in the, of it as, as we see it, as we perceive it with our senses. So to bear down upon that with something beyond the senses with say reasoning, the sixth sense and, and, and maybe more than that, maybe reasoning that's been informed by by something beyond reasoning, like sacred literature or something that's not really just manifest from, from a thinking mind. It's manifest from, a, from one that's stopped thinking. We call it samadhi basha. Basha means language, so the language of trance, of another kind of communication, a kind of knowing that's arrived at not by exercising the mind, which brings us to kind of a circular knowing. Reason is endlessly circular. It's mentioned in, in the sutras, Vedanta Sutra, Tarko Apartishtanat. Few words, but profound. It says Tarko means logic, reasoning, argumentation. 
apratishtana, you never get anywhere with this. You never get any real standing. One kind of logic can be defeated by another kind of logic and, and so on. So sacred texts are, and if you say, well, that, that logic is also, you know, can be defeated. We say, yeah, that's my point, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So uh, it's not that we shouldn't be logical and reasonable, but reason should bring us to the point of appreciating the limitations of reasoning. And if then, through reasoning in pursuit of perfect knowledge, that we might act in such a way that we could be perfectly happy, we have to then consider that other than merely exercising the mind and intellectual faculty, there may be another way of knowing that's perfect, that can provide perfect knowledge by which I can become perfectly happy. Of course, that's what yoga is about, ultimately. That's what spiritual discipline is about and so forth. And so sacred texts, we sometimes refer to them like this. They're samadhi bhasha. They're coming from another, it's another language. It may be in English. It may be in Sanskrit. It may be in Bangla or this language or that, Spanish or whatever, Hindi or whatever it may be. And it may hopefully be logically arranged and so forth, but there's something behind it where it's come from. It's come from a different place. It's come from beyond the world of the mind, limited and small as it is. And it's a beautiful place. So it has something beautiful to say to us, and it's inviting and charming, even when it says the world that we're attached to is not as beautiful as we thought and it's problematic and and the sun setting is, is killing you what about that so you just sit on the dock forever and watch it every night or do you wake up to the fact of what it's actually telling you with the rising and the setting of the sun this poem says oh, everyone's life is being taken away so you know it's nice of the sun to tell us that the movement of nature, uh, movements of nature to speak to us in that way. If we would listen at first, we might be a little unsettled, but sacred texts often then encourage us what to do about that, what to do with that. Uh, so arriving at this type of insight is a real uh, beginning to a prospect, our highest prospect in life, to look beyond the mind, beyond the world of the senses, to look within. But as I say, at the same time, when we first hear it, it might be a little disconcerting or a little unpalatable because what's making the world worth living is the beauty of it and the pursuit of love and so forth. And we're told, in a sense, that's really not that beautiful and this pursuit of love is really quite problematic. And so what are we left to, what are we left to live with just those words and, and we'll just sit then on that? point being here is that does the ultimate reality, is it, does it, is it inherently beautiful? And is there something called, let's say, real love if there's false love? Is there real beauty if there's false beauty? And yes, the profound understanding that the setting of the sun in a metaphorical sense is killing us has some beauty to it. But can we live inside of that beauty? Is that enough? You understand what I'm saying? If I say to you, in other words, look, desire is the fire that you're burning in. You have desire, and it's like, as a result of that, you're on fire. 
and you are, we're struggling on account of this desire, like trying to get out of a fire, and we don't know that we're lighting the fire. And with our attempts to, many of our attempts to get out are just adding fuel to it. So, then, to move away from desire, difficult idea. And so shall we stop desire? I mean, what is the difference between, tell me, desire and life? This is matter, you know, in a crude form, the table, the seat. It has a life because I guess I'm sitting on it and kind of bringing it to life and calling it a table. In other words, it's being conceived of by consciousness and brought to life. Consciousness is lending its life to it and giving it meaning. It doesn't have any desire. So shall we become like a table? <laughs> it might end desire, but is there a much very palatable life? Is that all there is to enlightenment, in other words? Ending desire? I've often spoken of karma, the movement in this world, using the analogy of negative numbers. Allow me to use it again. What I mean by that is, if we move in this world based on the misconception that what we are is a man, or a woman, or an Indian, or an American, or a Latino, or an, uh, an African-American, that we are this bundle of uh, desires. If we move in the world in this way, our movements are being dictated to us by the force of the mind and the senses. So we feel needy in this condition. And then so we have to take. We're all exploiting to one extent or another. We're all on the take. In order to maintain our sense of self, material sense of self, we have to take. Right? You have to take. It's, it's on the, you have to breathe to take air. And even in taking air, there's something's dying. Well, you're thinking you're getting a breath of fresh air in life. Something is being breathed in and dying. When you light a fire to cook, something is dying. It's unavoidable. So to maintain this sense of self, to live, we have to kill. We try to reduce it. We try to get away from it as far as possible, understandably. But what yoga talks about is a comprehensive way to bring about an end to this altogether. And I don't mean by just being a breatharian. More than that. How to give and how to get out of this bodily kind of illusion of self. So when we're moving under that illusion, we're because we're taking, we're incurring a debt. That's the basic principle of karma. We took, and so we owe. I've seen a bumper sticker, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. So there it is. This is the principle of karma. So using the analogy again of negative numbers, when we move, we go into debt. If you borrow money from the bank, you appear to have money, but you owe. And you owe more than you borrowed because of the compounded interest. So when we move in the world under the influence of karma, we don't really get anywhere. We don't really progress. We get into debt. Yoga is kind of the art of moving in such a way so as not to incur karma. In the beginning, we move, may, might move from negative karma, which is overtly negative, to good karma, which is, looks good on the surface, but it's also entangling. It's also you know, binding. You might have to 
you know, live a, a thousand happy lives as a wealthy person. <laughs> Real problem. <laughs> By this kind of movement, we move into negative numbers. Now, all that movement is about the confusion of desire and so forth, right? So if we understand this and we start to move away from desire, when we, if we start to bring out ourself and feel the fullness of the self through such a method as yoga, then our desires diminish. We start to come where? Out of negative numbers. Now, if we're coming out of negative numbers and we get to zero, that's something positive in comparison to negative numbers. The Buddha would like us to stop there, and he's a wise fellow. Stop there. No more suffering. No doubt, it's true. There's a kind of a fullness in emptiness when emptiness is compared to negative numbers. It's a kind of a, ah, a sigh of, of relief. You know, If you're running down the street because people are chasing you, and then you go into a door and lock it and they can't come in, you can sigh of relief. But the question remains, how long are you going to stay in there? Hmm? It may be a huge relief from the world of suffering where your desires are chasing you down the road and, and you know the mind is like a thief that says, someone robbed the bank. And we say, who? He said, I don't know, he went over that way. In other words, the mind is telling the problem's over here, the problem is over there. And we're never dealing with the problem, which is the mind, and harnessing it and so forth, which is what's you know so central to yoga. Where desires surface and have a chance to be entertained. And if we're not watchful of that mind, then we are entertaining the desires and they're taking us here, there, and everywhere and chasing us down the road. If we can master that mind and let the desires pass through, we can come to this kind of safe house. It's like a, like a safe house. You know, in foreign countries, the terrorists have safe houses. Right? Well, in this country too, I guess. They, they consider them safe. It's like you're in a foreign place and you're being chased, but this is a safe house. But these are not places to stay forever. All these things should be considered. Can I stay there forever? Why? I say this. This is my thought. Because, as I said earlier, what makes life worth living is the prospect of beauty, of love, of relationships, for that matter. You want to be alone forever? Because people are bothering you? Nations argue. Villages argue. Individuals argue. In the same family, there's arguments. So, is peace just everybody being quiet? Will everybody be quiet? For a while. What about the healthy interaction? Beyond the truce. If we make a truce, then we stop fighting. But what about peace? Peace means healthy commerce between nations. Without you know, passing the borders, breaking down the borders. There's a union that goes on where boundaries are not considered. But that union in peace between peace-loving peoples, nations, and so forth, is an interesting kind of union because it's a union that's a multiplicity at the same time. It's a oneness 
that is at the same time a multiplicity. As much as we pine for unity, we pine for difference also. This is a fact of life. So we can talk about yoga, the big one, and unity, you know, that's great. But my thought is, that's part of the whole thing, yeah. But there must be some type of difference, some type of individual expression, some type of variety that we say in life, in ordinary life, is the spice of the whole thing, that has its expression in transcendence within unity, that doesn't compromise the unity. Now our differences, based as they are on our desires, our senses, perception of the world, our minds, determinations of goods and bads, what's good for you is bad for me, what's happy for you is sad for me, what's hot for you is cold for me. We have these kind of differences from one another. They get in the way of us finding the common ground, what we have in common, that we're human beings, for example, that we're earthlings or however you want, you're Americans or you're earthlings or humans uh, and go higher. We're souls. Then when we go from we're humans to we're souls, we're atma, we're consciousness, then we find, oh, our unity expands beyond our species. Because we find consciousness is in, in other species of life too. In fact, species of life means consciousness. Life is consciousness. So then we have kind of a common ground with, with the animals, with the plants, with everything. So as we go higher from family to national identity to continental identity to planetary identity, universal, you know, it will grow to that as we go to Mars and everything, identity, and parallel universe identity. <laughs> and so forth. But now we go to consciousness. This is what yoga addresses. We come to, oh, the real underlying ground of being that we all have in common. There we come, we come together. Now, the question is this. This is the big one, right? We all come together there. Is there anything going on there? Or do we just all dissolve? Each one of us, our own individuality, is all dissolved there. And there's just one. There's no difference. Now our differences get in the way of unity because they're springing from the mind. So you think you're an American and I think I'm an Indian. So we have differences and we have different cultural sensibilities. So we, we can't quite come together. So, okay, get beyond all these cultural differences. Get down to the ground of being what we are. We're consciousness. Realize it through yoga. We all come together. But, but we all dissolve too in that, don't we? Our individuality dissolves. A prospect for love, at least as we know it, interacting with others, dissolves also. Yes, there is real love in seeing through infatuation and exploitation in the name of love. That's a fact. When I am detached from you and I do not see you as an object that I need in order for me to become full, and mistakenly call that love. And you've got needs that you see you can fulfill through me, and so we make a, a pact to get together and call that love two needy people. To see through the illusion of that and become full in oneself, then we don't take from people anymore. And certainly not taking from people 
Not exploiting things is certainly fundamental to love, but is that in itself the full expression of love? You follow me? No, I'd say it's one half of the equation. And Shankar stopped there. Chaitanya wants to take us beyond that. He wants to say to us that the reason that we find it difficult to leave the world infatuated by the beauty and the charm and the prospect of love is that in the effect, the cause is also found. Some sense of the cause is found. The effect is the world, the cause is the absolute. Brahman, the world is coming from consciousness. That's where it's coming from. That's what it's about. Consciousness, interacting with matter, makes the whole thing go round. So in that world, there's the effect. In that effect, something about the cause can be found. As I said, in the problem, we can also trace out something about the solution. Knowledge is one thing. Love is kind of another thing. It's not without knowledge, but it's really kind of an essential type of knowledge. It's the action that's informed by the highest knowledge that makes knowledge, well, we said it earlier, love knows no reason. It's a problem in the material world, but if we go to the realm of consciousness, it may be, the, it may be our highest prospect to find love in transcendence, to find difference that does not compromise unity in transcendence, to find variety, which as we say readily is the spice of life, within consciousness in a way that it doesn't compromise the unity. This is the idea of Leela. And Leela is similar in appearance, but very different from karma. Karma is that action that we described earlier that is something we have to do. Do you understand? We're driven by desires to do it. And because we've done it and exploited it, we've got a reaction and we're, we've got to do it. Like I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. I can't stay home today. I've got to work. It's like that. We were forced. Now, Leela, that is movement also. And the movement ostensibly looks like the movement of the material world. When Bhagwan performs Leela, when Krishna plays his flute, and the cows listen and come, and the gopis, milkmaidens, they'll are charmed by that? Oh, well, you can find something like that here also. People play flutes and people milk cows and people have girlfriends and girlfriends have boyfriends. And But this is a different affair than the movements in the realm of karma. Now, when we start to talk about something like Krishna, then here's a problem. The thought comes, now we're going in more in a sectarian direction. What about that? The highest ideal cannot be sectarian. But the highest religious or spiritual ideal at the same time cannot be only that which all spiritual traditions have in common. That, instead, is the lowest common spiritual denominator. It's not the highest. So let's say all the ego-effacing spiritual traditions experiential spiritual traditions, they all tell us in one way or another, your ego, this ego of material desire, that ego has to go. They all tell us, hey, go within or go without. 
It's as simple as that. Hmm? <laughs> That's what they tell us. They all tell us we are all consciousness or something. They use different language to talk about it like this. We're all, and they can get along with one another. Whereas those who, who haven't like caught on to that common thread, they're fighting over their sectarian sensibilities. Muslims with Hindus and Christians with uh, Jews and and you know and so on and so forth and all this over details over sectarian principles uh, or, or details and so forth. So yes, to go beyond this is to go higher and to find a common ground. Yes, but this common ground is only the lowest common denominator. It's not, in other words, the more specific a spiritual ideal becomes, the more it becomes, less abstract it becomes the more it becomes tangibly beautiful, charming, compelling, rather than just compelling and beautiful in an abstract sense. That zero that I talked about, the fullness of that zero is kind of an abstract beauty. If beauty can become more concrete. After all, what is beauty? Think about it. An author has beauty in herself. An artist has beauty in himself. But without the pen, without the canvas, without the form, the shape, the form of beauty, how can we take advantage of it? Is that form anything less than the beauty that is inherent in the artist? Or is it something more? Is it, is it, there it is. It's expressed. And it can be taken advantage of. We tend to think of form as a limitation because our forms are limiting. It's a fact. We feel like we like to do so many things, but especially as we get older, <laughs> we find we can't. So there's a tendency to think about spiritual life as being formless and being free thereby. And there's something to be said about that. That zero is formless, shapeless, empty, a lot of space there, <laughs> a real lot of space. <laughs> so, but, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but we don't want just space. That's a relief. We want affection. That's what we want. How much space is there in affection? Think about it. <laughs> you can be in the smallest room and the whole world can burn down if you're feeling affection there. Sri Chaitanya, he lived in Puri, Jagannath Puri, that seaside uh, village in India for many years, the last 18 years of his manifest presence in this world in a room about eight by eight made out of stone. That's all. You know, as soon as we go anywhere, we want to know where, where are we going to stay, what are the accommodations, how big, you know. We actually were lacking affection. He was so filled with affection for Krishna and getting so much affection from the absolute reciprocation by his method of approach that it could, you know, people can stay in a cave like this is the idea. It was warm and more luminous than the brightest light, more warmer than the, the biggest fire. So space is accommodating, yeah, when you're crowded. But if we look further, affection is what is accommodating. This gives us room and we, we feel big by that. So when we speak of Krishna, that's what we're speaking about. We're speaking about affection, the form of affection. Affection without exploitation taking shape. The form of beauty I mean, this is subjective. If you look at the Hindu pantheon of all the gods and goddesses, they all got something to do. They're all involved in something. Shiva's meditating and Brahma's busy thinking. There's four heads in creating and 
Indra's got eyes all over his body. He's looking everywhere for some fun. He's in a big enjoyer in heaven. Huh? They've all got something to do. And Krishna has nothing to do. He's just playing his flute. He's just playing. This is how he's depicted. Now play. Don't be deceived by this. Because play requires power. If you want to take a vacation, you have to have money in the bank. You have to have worked, accumulated some power to play. So who is depicted by mystics as only playing is all-powerful. You understand? And if we study that conception of Krishna given by the mystics, we find all possibilities of love lie in relation to this particular manifestation of divinity. Therefore, there's no question of sectarianism, although some people are pretty sectarian about it. <laughs> but philosophically, theologically, and who has a real experience rather than just a fundamentalist orientation in a head full of religious dogma, who has experience, who has samadhi, who has taste for this, ah, then there's no question of sectarianism. And neither does it disintegrate this idea of love into just an abstract fog of zero and get everybody together on this. So this Leela and Krishna Leela, Radha Krishna Leela, this is a movement of reality that is not forced, that has no, it's not movement out of necessity, like the movement of karma. It is the absolute expressing its fullness. In other words, there can be movement out of incompleteness, out of necessity, try to become complete, or there can be movement out of completeness. What is the movement out of fullness, out of completeness? That is dancing, celebration. This is Leela. And so, when we speak of sacred aesthetic rapture, the topic tonight, it talks about transcending this whole illusion of individuality and the fire of material desire, but in pursuit of real beauty, real charm, and real love that the world is a reflection of. And in Bhakti tradition of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, that we are representing, then the ideal, rather than stopping at zero, is to find positive numbers. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 108. And it means that the Atma, the Self, has a potential for unity with divinity in which the Absolute expresses its fullness in relation to those souls, if you will, that have unified with the Absolute into a dance or a play of a drama, really. A drama where nobody really gets killed. <laughs> and it's all just fun. <laughs> Something like that. It's a high idea, actually, because it's easy to take you from, well, the world of names and forms is illusory, to zero, but then to go up from there, now there are forms that aren't illusory. It's a little gets head starts to spin a little bit. It's a little we go from philosophy to theology in high reach. But I want to leave it at this. Please consider that if ultimate reality is about love, which we're all pursuing, why be disappointed with the simple truth that love of this world is false, or temporary, and you're eternal, so it's not going to fulfill you completely. Why settle for just that? Why not settle for the idea that there is transcendent love? There is a unity with divinity that the two become we, not the two become one and extinguish themselves. You can be an individual 
and have union with the Absolute. And love, and Krishna, oh, this is such a nice idea. In the, in the Leela, they are loving like a father loves a son or a mother loves a son. And who's the son? It's Krishna. <laughs> it's inconceivable. The lover, the friend, all these are different sentiments of love that we experience in this world and we pursue. The idea is they can be experienced in relation to the Absolute. What does that mean? We are a tiny, tiny speck of consciousness. And with the whole of consciousness, if you will, the reservoir of consciousness, we can have a relationship through bhakti if that bhakti reaches its zenith. A relationship in which that whole reservoir of consciousness becomes like subordinate to us. Like a son is subordinate to him. Like a, like a lover is like a, you know, he's like a henpecked lover of Radha. What this means philosophically, theologically, is that the Absolute is putting itself in the hands of us. We like to think we're in the hands of God, hopefully. This is a whole different idea. God's in our hands. In other words, love pulls both God and us to a union in which love is worshipped by both. You've heard of Krishna, you've heard of Radha. Radha is the emblem of that love. This is the idea. Krishna is touching the feet of Radha. This means the whole reservoir of consciousness is subordinating itself to the force of the affection of the bhakta, of the devotee. What kind of yoga is that? You want to catch the absolute. There are other methods and degrees of penetration into the absolute, but this is a very extraordinary idea. So, we are all, again, living this life for love because that's what it's like about. Now, why do away with it? Because we realize that if material love is false, why don't we think there's real love? And when there's a yoga to realize it and end in, a, in sacred aesthetic rapture forever, it's certainly worth, uh, worth your thoughtful investigation. And I thank you for coming here tonight for, for listening. Any question? Yes, sir. Where do we go from here? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where to go from here. If there's anything more than this, you can... You tell me about it. That's we can do that, yes. Yes, that is the main method given by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. This, what's in a name? What's in a name? A lot. Yes. Yeah. You were saying how um, Hare Krishna, Hare Rama is the Mahamantra. Mantra. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, my question is, why is that the Mahamantra? Mantra? <laughs> Krishna, Rama. I know they're both incarnations, but yeah. there's something more that I'm not getting about that. Yeah, there's a lot there. You got some time? <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty big question. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Um, okay, one thing, uh, let me talk about it in a couple of different ways, as briefly as I can. One thing is that this Hare Krishna Mahamantra is the Mahamantra in a general sense because it's universal in its outreach. It's universal. So, it has the capacity to deliver one to zero if you want and leave it at that. Or, which is, you know, some people want that. Or it can take you to the heights that we were talking about. So, uh, regardless of one's spiritual conception, 
the mantra is kind of all-inclusive. And so it can be rendered or translated in that way and understood conceptually as far as the mind can conceive its meaning to be universal in its application. So let's take, for example, the names in there. There are three names, Hare, Krishna, and Rama. So some people may take it to mean Krishna means Krishna, the cowherd. Or Krishna has different appearances, like in Kurukshetra, in the Bhagavad Gita, he's a prince. He's got a whole different disposition there. That's a different leela. He's got different kinds of devotees who surround him, and it's a different bhava, a different ecstasy than the pastoral aspect of, of Krishna. So you could think of it as that kind of Krishna. Hmm? Or Ram, let's take Ram. So there is Ram. You know Sita Ram? So there is one Ram. And there's Parasharam. And there's Balaram. So many types of Rams, all different manifestations of Krishna. So people will have different conceptions of what is the Ram. And same with Hare. Hare means Hari, which means God who steals away everything. Like time takes everything away. This is a general idea. All the words in this, all the names in this mantra are in the vocative case, which means that it's a nam mantra, and all the, the names are invocative, which means that they can be sung any place, any time, anywhere. Whereas some mantras, most mantras for dhyan, for meditation, are in the dative case. And in order to utter them or to meditate on them, there are certain rules that go with that. You have to sit in a particular way and oftentimes face a particular direction and so forth. It's a, vocative is just like shouting out, Oh, Hari! Oh, Krishna. Oh, Ram. So, it's universal in the sense that, in this sense also, that it goes anywhere and everywhere. It touches anybody, even if they don't want to be touched, if they hear it, in Kirtan, for example. So, that's one sense of its greatness, its universality, and how far it spreads, how magnanimous it is, how far down it reaches. Now, the other side of its greatness is how high it goes. And that depends upon the conception of the name that's derived from the guru whom we receive it from, who's chanting it. What his or her realization is, and the tradition, that it, the lineage it comes in, and so forth. So, now to go to the high side, and skip everything in between, just to, because the time is limited here. In Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's conception, then, Krishna means Krishna, but it means pastoral Krishna, Krishna of the brudge, Krishna of the cowherd. Krishna has no weapons, he's not fighting any battles, or anything. If you study the Leela of Krishna, this is the charming whole side of Krishna. We say this is the full expression of Krishna. And Ram, Ram means another name for that same Krishna. It means like the lover. Ramanti indicates the romantic love side of Krishna. And then Hare. Hare is evocative of Hari, as I said, which means it's a name for Krishna. Everybody in that leela of the pastoral leela of Krishna, they like to call him Hari because he's stolen their heart. Not like time steals everything. You see, it's a higher idea, but it's the same word. It means the same thing. To them it means, oh, Hari, we are dead. He's stolen our heart. We can't do anything but love him. But it also, Hare, is the evocative for Hara. Hara means the feminine. It means... Shakti. Krishna's Shaktiman, like the energetic and energy. 
So Krishna means energetic, and Hara means the energy, Shakti. It's a name for Radha. So then we come, Krishna, and then we define Krishna further. Oh, that romantic Krishna, who is everything, but who has fallen in love with his Shakti, Radha. So Hare, you may watch it, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Krishna, Krishna, Hare, Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, 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 Hare, Hare. Whether it's Rama or Krishna, it's surrounded by Hare. He's surrounded on all sides. So this mantra speaks of the fact that, I'll give you a statement. Krishna says, Ami Purnananda. I'm the full bliss. Ami Palatattva, the supreme truth. But Radhikar Premer Unmadha, the Prem, which was the prayojan, the goal I talked about in the beginning, love, the love, prayer means that the love of Radha drives me mad. He says, Radharani is my guru. I'm just her dancing pupil. So this mantra speaks about kind of what I was talking about. And our highest objective, as taught by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, is to imbibe the sentiments, the kind of love that Radha personifies, that Krishna will become like Captive. This is the idea. In that Leela, those who have that kind of love are so mad about Krishna that they try to stop thinking about him because he's driving them crazy. And they can't. Whereas in ordinarily in, ordinarily in yoga, we try to think about Krishna and we can't. They're trying to stop thinking about him and they can't. So this mantra is powerful in this way. It's very, it's, you know, that's a brief explanation. <laughs> and it's mentioned also in the Kalisantarana Upanishad. There Narada asks Brahma that in Kali Yuga, it's supposed to be this time, according to the Hindu time cycles, and so forth, Kali Yuga, time of chaos and quarrel and hypocrisy and so forth. At this time, Narada says, how will people be delivered in the Kali Yuga? And Brahma replies in that Upanishad, he says, Iti sorasakam nam nam kalikal masha nashanam Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Ram Hare Ram 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 Hare Hare These sorasakam means 16 These 16 names It means 3 names but arranged in 16 16 times By these 16 names kalikal masha nashanam The whole influence of kali will be nashanam Destroyed Saiva vedeshu drishite And all the Vedas say this so if we really study the sacred literature comprehensively, you see it's all pointing to this combination, meaning it's the Maha Mantra. There are so many mantras take us in so many different directions, help us in so many different ways, and there may be ones that don't help us too. But that's why this is called Maha Mantra. Brief explanation. Sorry for the long brief explanation. <laughs> yeah, so we've all been sitting for quite a while and it's hard to sit, I know, so... Maybe you could we could chant a little bit and come to a close. Thank you very much again. Thank you.